You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. We're continuing on in our series on the life of Solomon. And we come to 1 Kings 4 after Solomon has prayed to the Lord and received an incredible gift of wisdom, demonstrated then that wisdom that he received through his judgment on on the two women fighting over the child. And this evening we are going to see what are the effects of the rule of a wise king and the blessings the nation receive because of it. So give your attention to the Lord's word from 1 Kings 4. And bear with me with the many, many Hebrew names in this text. This is God's holy word. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabad, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, the son of Ada, was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. These were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Makaz, Shalbam, Beth-Shemesh, and Elon Beth-Hanan, Ben-Hased in Aryaboth, to him belonged Sukkah and all the land of Hefer, Ben-Abinadab, in all Naphath-dor, he had Taphath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Ahilud in Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Bethshin, that is beside Zarethan, below Jezreel. And from Bethshin to Abel-Meholah, as far as the other side of Jokmim. Ben-Geber and Ramoth-Gilead, he had the villages of Jer, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead. He had the region of Argob, which is in the Bashan. Sixty great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Edo and Mahanaim, Ahimaz and Naphtali, he had taken Basimath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Hushai and Asher and Beloth, Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua and Issachar, Shimei, the son of Elah and Benjamin, Geber, the son of Uri in the land of Gilead, the country of Sion, king of the Amorites, and Avog, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who was over the land. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsah to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. 
And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Maol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were a 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May the Lord richly bless the preaching and receiving and hearing and doing of his holy word. Amen. 1 Kings 4.25 in this passage told us this. Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. This phrase about every man living under his vine and under his fig tree was one of George Washington's very favorite phrases. It comes up frequently in his correspondence. Uh, It was popularized in the musical Hamilton, where he sings of such things. And What this meant to George Washington was a particular vision of America as a place of freedom and rest, freedom from oppression, freedom from tyranny, such that each man could sit in his own land and enjoy the fruits of his own labor. He's under his own vine. He's under his own fig tree, eating the fruits of his own property. Um, um, a vision of economic independence. And Washington also applied this to to the need for immigration into the land. He, He wanted America to be a place where people could come and escape oppression and find this promise, this refuge of being able to be one who sits under your own vine and your own fig tree. A place of peace, of rest, and of joy. And isn't this really what every nation would desire? To, to be a place where people have peace, security, rest, and rejoicing. That's what we're all after, even, uh, even in a worldly sense. But we know that in this world, this peaceful, idyllic picture, it doesn't come naturally. The natural state, it seems, of this world is one of chaos, violence, destruction. And part of the reason why God instituted civil government was to mitigate these chaotic effects of sin. And so the wiser, the more godly the government, the results of that always work towards the peace, the prosperity, the joy, and happiness of that people. And this is what is illustrated abundantly in the life of Solomon in this passage, that as he ruled wisely, the people prospered. 
the wise rule of the king resulted in the peace and joy of the community. We're talking about the king and the community tonight. The one affects the other. And as we look at how Solomon's rule blessed the community, we remember, in a greater sense, that living under the wise rule of King Jesus is the foundation of true peace and joy now, as well as hope for complete peace and joy in the future. So we're going to look tonight at the wise government of the king and then the peace and joy of the community. Let me summarize some of these major sections that come at the first part of this chapter. So in verses 1 to 6, we read the names of Solomon's various officials. These are really heads of various ministries in his government. Uh, these are, could be considered his cabinet posts, if you will. And we're used to, you know, when governments turn over, there's a total turnover um, in these sorts of ministry posts. Wipe the slate clean, start over with your own guys. But uh, interestingly, Solomon actually retains many of David's um, civic ministers, people that were seemingly doing a good job, and he sees that it, it's worthwhile to keep them working. He adds some new people, and this is meant to show to Israel that Solomon made good choices in the people he placed in positions of government. Uh, the way you delegate the people you appoint, um, is, it always says something about you. Um, in 7 to 19, then, we read of Solomon's district leaders. So these aren't the people at the, at the center of the government, w- around Solomon directly, but these are heads of districts, and there's 12 of them. Now, we know that Israel was uh, set into 12 tribes, but the issue there is that these tribes are div- like significantly different populations from massive to small. So Solomon actually divides up the country into 12 more equally populated zones. And if you have these 12 equally populated zones, he has some sort of governor over each of them. And each of these 12 12 districts is meant to provide for the king's palace. We can think of this as the central government one month of the year. This This is a tax, if you will. Each district was required to provide one-twelfth of the costs of running the country, if you will. And this is seen as an aspect of Solomon's wise rule. Don't you know that there can be wise or unwise systems of taxation? And Solomon displays his wisdom in even the administration and the organization of how his kingdom government works. And we see what happens as a result of this system. In verses 22 to 28, we then saw the wealth of Solomon's government, how each of these districts provided sumptuously for the palace. It it told us the details of their actual menus of what they served. And in an agrarian society, we could think of this as the wages for the central government. They provided the food for them to eat so that the civil servants could then be about doing the business of serving the people. And so these districts provided for the salaries of the administration of the government, and they also provided for for the military security of the nation. We we read of the horses and the chariots that they had. And it's interesting to note that um, Israel had about the same amount of horses and chariots as Egypt at at this time. They weren't seeking military supremacy, but a sort of parity with the surrounding nations. And the point here is that Solomon's kingdom was well supplied. They had no lack. The government was running smoothly under Solomon's wise administration. And so all this, this information is meant to give us um, a picture 
of an incredibly successful government. And this public prosperity is directly connected then to Solomon's personal wisdom. This is a result of his wisdom, which is why we're told the source of Solomon's wisdom at the end of this text. Take a look um, in your Bible at verse 29. We read that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. God gave Solomon wisdom. This is a gift of God's grace. This was an answer to Solomon's prayer for wisdom. God gifted him with wisdom. And we're told what sort of wisdom this was, that his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East, all the people of the surrounding nations. And it's interesting to think that God does acknowledge that there can be wisdom, even in nations that don't acknowledge him. But Solomon's wisdom far surpasses the wisdom of the wisest in the nations, which is really incredible when you think that Solomon was a full-time king and yet had time to surpass people that devoted their lives to philosophy and to wisdom in these various categories. Just simply amazing. And just look at how, um, how full and manifold Solomon's wisdom was. Verse 32 says that he spoke 3,000 proverbs. 3,000 proverbs. We have only some of them in the Bible. And Solomon here, was, he's a writer. And I was trying to think of, you know, we don't really have proverb writing as a thing today. There's no, not many volumes of it. But then I was thinking, if we were thinking in a modern context, uh, that's almost what Twitter is. You know, you have a, have a short 140-character limit to try to say some densely packed, really thoughtful, insightful statement in a really short area of time. So I could just imagine if Solomon was king today, his Twitter feed would just be like the book of Proverbs. Just wisdom overflowing. Everything he says is gold. Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And if that wasn't enough, he wrote 1,005 songs. So like, if you were today making a Spotify playlist of just, I want to listen to some Solomon, 1,005 songs just written by Solomon. We have one of them, the Song of Songs, which we assume is his best one in scripture. But Solomon, he was a writer. He was a poet. He was a musician. But also, he was a scientist. Look at verse 33. He spoke of trees from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. So like the cedar, the biggest tree, the hyssop, a small little plant grows in the walls. He spoke also of birds and beasts and reptiles and fish. He was a botanist and a biologist. How did he do this all? So no wonder, in verse 34, we see that the people of the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So to add on to top of all that, writer, poet, scientist, Solomon was famous. He's like the ultimate Renaissance man. But then the question we ask is, why did God gift Solomon so remarkably? Did God give this to him just so that he could enjoy his life? No. God made Solomon wise for the good of his people. That was what we saw Solomon requested originally. He said, grant your servant wisdom that he may govern this great people of yours. God made Solomon wise so that his people would be blessed. Solomon's kingly wisdom was to be a conduit of God's blessing to the nation. And that is exactly what we see in our text. 
that God blessed the people through Solomon's wise rule. Take a look at verse 20. In this chapter, we are given just two summary statements. In verses 20 and 25, that tell us what was the effect of Solomon's rule on the nation itself. And these are significant. Verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. This fulfills the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 22:17, where he said, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God keeps his promises. And further than this, the people weren't just numerous, but it says they ate and drank and were happy. What a beautiful picture of what we would love to see in a nation. The people eat and drink and are happy. This is almost a picture of, you know, what, what we would think of as the ideal Thanksgiving that we just celebrated. And, and we, we know that not every Thanksgiving's a win and not everyone's situation is amazing. But if we were to imagine, if we will, the ideal Thanksgiving, what is that picture but a family gathered around a table, feasting, enjoying delicious food, and enjoying their company, just what God has given, eating and drinking in happiness. Uh, This idea of happiness here is not necessarily just a state of contentment. It's It's a rejoicing. And when this word is used in the Old Testament, it's used almost always in a response to an act of goodness. That is, this happiness, this joy that erupts comes from a recognition of God's goodness. And as I was reflecting on this this week, um, I just kept thinking of the idea of the fact that I think we need a new word in English. I think we need the word goodnesses. I know the, uh, the authorized version has kindnesses, but I could not find that the word goodnesses is a real word. So even though it turned red on my word processor, I added it to the, to the dictionary because we need to be looking for goodnesses. You know what I'm talking about? That what are the goodnesses that God has given? And to walk through life, eyes wide open, saying, where are the goodnesses of God I can point to? That's a goodness of God. That's a goodness of God. This is a goodness of God. Because as we walk in recognition of the goodnesses of God that are all around us, that helps us to be people of joy and rejoicing. Who every time we eat delicious food, the goodness of God that that is to us causes our hearts to rejoice. We need to think on God's goodnesses that we might be a joyful people. And in light of Solomon's wise and godly rule, the people did rejoice, but further they rejoiced in safety and contentment. Again, look at verse 25, the one we opened with. We're told that Solomon had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. The people lived in safety. There was peace in their days across the whole nation. Dan and Beersheba were the extremities of of the um, area of Israel. It would be the kind of the equivalent of saying from New York to LA. So from Dan to Beersheba, there was peace in the whole nation. And this security was evidenced in every man being positioned under his own vine and fig tree. This, This idiom gets used in the prophets. It starts here, but it's used in the prophets to denote this peace and security 
As one commentator said, it, this phrase denotes rest and the undisturbed enjoyment of the fruits of the earth. Or as another said, this phrase denotes the happy, safe, quiet, full, and peaceable enjoyment of all outward blessings. Or still another, it denotes the protection every man had in the possession and enjoyment of his own property. Again, this is a beautiful picture. It's almost kind of like the, the American ideal of the white picket fence. You know, that, that, how that white picket fence has become, um, as one person wrote in an article, um, the white picket fence is the modest totem of middle-class prosperity. And, and the white picket fence, it, it represents uh, economic stability. It represents family, safety, comfort. And uh, just think of this, you know, the white picket fence, it's secure enough to, to keep children and pets in it and safe, but yet it's, it's open and neighborly. It's not keeping anyone out. It's, not, it's useless for protection because people that have them feel safe. It, it, it also, it, it demarcates that, that which one has acquired by their industry. It, it holds all that is precious to you. Family, property. It's, it, this is this picture that everyone lives under their own vine and fig tree. Everyone lives within their own white picket fence. This is the, um, the result of Solomon's wise rule that comes into blessings for the people. This is a phrase used in agricultural times. It's an agricultural society. They're under their vines, their fig tree, eating the fruits of their own labor. And what a picture. This picture of joy, of peace, security, and prosperity in the days of Solomon. And I think we've all tasted this in seasons. We, we've all at moments and at times experienced just when all feels well in life. When you, when you just look around your home and are satisfied. But these times, they don't last. As we open saying, this is not the normal state of this world. This was not the normal state in Israel. The normal state is chaos and disruption. The normal state is often what we see in Joel 1 verse 12, where we're told the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Because we all know too well how the family table can become a war zone. Incomes can be lost. Wages can stagnate. The American dream, if you will, can vaporize before your very eyes. We, come, we can come under attack from foreign enemies. We can fear violence in our own streets. The peace and security is never to be finally and fully had in this life. No earthly ruler, no earthly king can bring us the peace and joy that we so relish and desire. We know, we innately recognize that we need a king greater than Solomon, wiser than Solomon. And the beautiful truth is that God has given us such a king. This is what Isaiah the prophet prophesied in his ninth chapter. He said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness 
from this time forth and forevermore. So the greater than Solomon is the king, the prince of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, who administrates a government far more wisely than Solomon ever could. Jesus is the greater than Solomon. And by way of application, I want us to see three ways that Jesus as our wise king brings peace and joy, the blessings of peace and joy to the people of God. First, it's that we gain peace and joy spiritually through the work of Jesus. We gain peace and joy spiritually through the work of Jesus. Jesus came to bring peace with God through his death to reconcile man to God that we might be at peace with our creator, no longer alienated, no longer at enmity. He also came to bring about peace in our consciences when guilt and shame due to our own sins would torment us and condemn us. Jesus, through his sacrificial atoning death, cleanses our consciences from guilt and shame. This is the sort of peace that no ruler on earth can ever bring. And when we recognize the absolute freedom we have of Jesus conquering the enemies that most afflict us, namely our own sin, death and destruction due to Satan, what a cause for rejoicing is that. That is the greatest goodness we can ever spy, is that of Jesus. And that causes hearts to rejoice with a joy that is from a deep well, a well that can never be plumbed. We gain peace and joy spiritually through Jesus' work. But secondly, we also grow in peace and joy communally through following the words of Jesus. So we get spiritual peace through the work of Jesus, but we grow in joy and peace communally as we follow the words of Jesus. Because Jesus as our king actually reigns over us as his citizens and tells us how he would have us to live. He gives us his law as a gracious gift. This is what Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 11. After he was telling them about how they need to obey his commands, he said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Because you see, it is in walking in the path of Jesus that you find the life that most conduces to peace and joy. And as a community, As believers follow after Jesus in his ways, they come to prove that all his ways are pleasantness and all his paths are peace. And that's why historically, wherever Christianity has spread across the globe, the welfare of all people is furthered. Education progresses. Healthcare progresses. Love for one another. The subduction of violence and evil. These all grow because the peace and joy that we have spiritually through God, it overflows into a community of what Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. So this is never attained fully, but we grow in manifesting joy and peace as we follow the words of Jesus. But we know that this task is never going to be complete on this side of the globe. We're not going to achieve any sort of Christian utopia. And that's why we remember thirdly, that we will gain peace and joy eternally at the return of Jesus. So we gained peace spiritually through the work of Jesus, we grow in peace and joy spiritually through the words of Jesus, and we will gain peace and joy eternally at the coming 
of Jesus. We await the coming and dawn of a better world where we will be finally rid of all our enemies, finally rid of the sin that clings so closely to us, living in a world of love where there is no unrighteousness, where there is the Lamb, and the Lamb is all and in all. It will be a feast in a world of utter peace with overflowing joy. We get a foretaste of it now, just an appetizer, but the feast remains. Let us look towards that day with eager expectation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is a greater king than Solomon, that he has subdued all of our greatest enemies, that he has crushed our enemies of sin and death, that he has destroyed them, and that in you we can have peace in our consciences and peace with our Father. We praise you that you've given us your word to follow, and we do ask that we will be peacemakers, people filled with joy who reflect and represent Christ's peace and joy in this world. And Lord, make us to be those who hope for the world to come, who anticipate eagerly the dawn of eternal peace and fullness of joy. Help us to live this week, Lord, in eager anticipation of these goods. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.